After spending a three-week voyage in the Ramboat, Heike, his mother Yadviga, his brother Arne, and his aunt Biate arrived in Pilau, East Prussia, modern-day Kaliningrad Oblast. Otto must have had considerable influence. Not only did he arrange the transportation for the family and their seven chests of belongings, he was also able to arrange a job for Yadviga at the training camp barracks in Pilau. The family stayed in a large mansion-like building located on the sandbar of the Vistula Spit that was used to house German military personnel. Jadwiga and Biete were able to attain jobs at a local barracks for the German Navy. In charge of the men in the area was a major that was a tank commander in the Battle of Stalingrad. It was rumored that the major had lost his leg in Stalingrad and he therefore walked with a limp. Jadwiga warned Heike to stay away from this man, which they had nicknamed the Mad Major, who dressed sharply and always carried a whip. Heike heeded his mother's advice and stayed away. But Heike did not stay away from the Russian prisoners that managed the stables. Heike liked to pet the horses and watch the blacksmiths apply their trade. The prisoners always smiled when Heike visited them, and often showed them their welts that the Major's whip caused. On one cold December day, the Mad Major ordered his recruits to carry water in buckets to a field and dump them. This activity went on all day, and on the following day there was an exhibition. The Major had two recruits fasten skates to his boots, and held him upright after catching his balance. Skated around the newly created skating rink, while everyone attending obediently applauded. During the winter days, one of Hickey's job was to gather kindling and firewood for their stove inside the barracks. On one occasion, he went further than normal to gather firewood and came across an older German soldier that offered to show Hickey around the concrete sea fortress. The fortresses filled Hickey with fear. They were massive and camouflaged with netting. To get in, Hickey had to duck and step down through a large iron door which was the first of many iron doors that were meant to seal off areas from attack. They made their way to the living quarters, which was furnished with beds and tables. Hakey was given a biscuit and some chocolate before viewing the rest of the fortress. They continued down quarters that never seemed to end, with more iron doors. It was like a city of bunkers. Eventually they reached an observation tower, and they came to a window with a slit, and that gave them the view of the Baltic Sea, which looked angry and menacing. When Hickey stepped down, he noticed the box he stood on was a box of live ammunition. After Hickey's incredible experience, he went back to collecting firewood. When Hickey thinks back on this time and the nice older soldier that helped him, he realized that there are nice soldiers everywhere, and that the older man must have looked at Hakey as a grandson, or representing something innocent. Fifty years later, while researching his family history, Hakey discovered that the short period of calm they experienced on the Vistula Spit violently came to an end shortly after their departure. On January 5, 1945, this area experienced some of the most violent and brave fighting of the Second World War. 
Soldiers under the command of Major General Hankey retreated to bunkers close to the bunkers that Hankey toured. These men fought till their ammunition ran out. Their mission was to support the other pockets of resistance in and around the lagoon at Hellingenbill so that the other troops and the refugees had a chance to flee the area and avoid the inevitable retributions. On January 5, 1945, the Soviet army began its East Prussian offensive. A few days before this, Hakey and his family were evacuated from Pilau to a deserted house in the village of Nutiev. The weather was extremely cold that January, with temperatures remaining around minus 20 Celsius. From the window of the house, Hakey saw an endless line of prisoners on the march in rows of two or three in the deep snow. They were being led away from the front so that they wouldn't fall into the Soviet hands. A group of the prison guards stopped by the house with their Alsatian dogs and asked if they could keep warm and warm their drinks up on the stove. In the polite conversation that followed, the guards mentioned that if the prisoners were not able to keep up, that they had no alternative but to shoot them. Hakey remembers feeling that this was a terrible way to end such a sad life. That night, Hakey remembers listening to cracking noises in the distance, wondering if that noise was the sound of German soldiers shooting the prisoners. Jadwiga suggested to Hakey that it was probably wooden fence posts splitting because of the extreme cold. These forced marches have been referred to as death marches. Hakey speculates in his memoir on the identities of these unfortunate souls. They may have been Jews or Russian prisoners of war, or even Osterbieter, which was a term for Eastern European workers who were basically enslaved by the German Reich, seen as subhuman, were forbidden to fraternize with Germans, and worked to death in many cases. The total number of Osterbieter are estimated to have been between 3.5 million to 5 million Poles, Belarusians, Tatars, and Russians. These unfortunate people were separated from their old life, in many ways arbitrarily and without consistency, as ethnic cleansing can be seen as a messy job. An example is Hakey's mother, Jadwiga. On her German identity document, which she used to work in the naval headquarters in Tallinn, stated that she was born in Poland, and her name and its spelling was Polish. Jadwiga and the family were in a better position than these prisoners because of the document, even though it showed her to be of Polish origin. As the ever-shifting front lines neared, the full extent of their dire situation became more evident. Fear and panic was in the air. Hakey states in his memoir that he has never seen his mother look so worried. The Soviet army at this point had reached Konigsberg, modern-day Kaliningrad, and it was only a matter of time before they would encircle the city. Anyone left in the city would likely face Soviet retribution, because by this point, the Soviet authorities were fully aware of how the Germans dealt with undesirable people they came upon. It was time to leave the house in Nutiev and head towards Pilau in the deep snow, where an evacuation was underway 
and the family was to procure passage on a ferry. It was essential that they make their way down the narrow Vistula Spit, which is a 50-kilometer narrow stretch of sandbar that starts in Pilau, modern-day Baltiesk, and stretches to the south towards modern-day Poland and the city of Gdansk. At Pilau, though, there is an inlet to the sea which breaks up the land corridor. Once the family reached the ferry, Heike remembers Jadwiga leaving the then 11-year-old Heike and the four-year-old Arne on land while she boarded the ship with luggage. Heike remembers the air raid sirens and the ferry boat pulling away from shore with his mother on board. Heike experienced fear at this point that he had never felt before, as he led his brother off to wait under some trees. What if his mother didn't return? What would he do? Luckily, there were no air raids in the vicinity, and the fairy with her mother returned to Pilau. By this time, Biete had left Jadwiga and the kids to meet up with her own son, who was a merchant seaman. Jadwiga and the boys eventually arranged passage on the ferry, which was a short ride over the narrow inlet. Up until January 20th, the German authorities forbade evacuation from the area, as it would have been detrimental to troop morale, and anyone seen fleeing the village before was to be shot. This delay of the evacuation had serious implications, as it allowed the Soviets to move ahead of the eventual evacuees threatening to cut them off, and this would have left them trapped. So when the burgermeister of the villages rang the church bells as the signal that they could leave, there was a rush of people that followed a prearranged path following flares over the frozen lagoon. Many fell through the cracking ice with their loaded down carts. In some cases, the Soviet Air Force dropped bombs to break the ice and block the way forward. Those fleeing on the road were strafed by fighter planes, while others were run down by tanks of the ever-advancing Soviet army. Stalin had issued instructions that the front-line troops could take watches and jewelry from the refugees. The second line could have the women, and the remaining troops could do what they saw fit with the remainder of the civilians. A famous Russian historian and author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn witnessed many of the atrocities by the Russian army and wrote a letter highly critical of Stalin's decisions. Solzhenitsyn was then sentenced to eight years of hard labor, which is where he experienced more of the brutality and where he gained his experiences in his future novels, most popularly Gulag Archipelago. When Heike arrived in Pilau, he thought it was like a town from hell. The town was filled with refugees and soldiers all in a panic moving in every direction. The Soviet army was on its way to Berlin, but it was keen to neutralize the German soldiers in this area so that they would not be outflanked later. Heike speculates that they reached Pilau on or around January 5, 1945, which was when the Russian offensive began. When the small family reached the naval headquarters in Pilau, Jadwiga went inside again leaving Heike and Arne waiting outside. While in the headquarters, Jadwiga was able to attain a rather luxurious flat for the family while they awaited their departure. Admiral Donitz would take it upon himself to order the mass evacuation of the area, named Operation Hannibal, one of the greatest evacuations by sea in world history. 
greater than the evacuation of Dunkirk. Somewhere between 494 and 1,080 vessels of all types over the period of 15 weeks would transport between 800,000 to 900,000 refugees and 350,000 soldiers across the Baltic Sea to Germany. When the family arrived at the flat, they made themselves at home to the articles of clothing that were left behind. The only food in the flat was a large apple, which the three shared. The town was under a constant bombardment, both day and night, by bombing raids and heavy artillery. The artillery would come in waves of activity, and then silence, when the guns were reloaded for a short period. This is when the inhabitants wandered out into the open to look for food. With the front line being so close, the town was transformed. The shopkeepers and residents were no longer there. The town took on a sinister feel, with only soldiers, the wounded, and refugees that could be seen. The field kitchen run by the soldiers was the only source for food. The field kitchen only provided meager portions for one person, and the location always changed. So Hakey would search around looking for these kitchens in between artillery barrages. On one trip to get food, Hakey ran across the worst side of his now long life. The field kitchen had recently taken a direct hit, and the cook, his helper, and the horses were all dead. This shocked Hakey at the time, and he believes this shock is the reason he recalls this period of his terrible adventures without as much clarity as the others. Hakey believes that this period of intense shelling coincided with the first siege of Konigsberg, which started on January 12, 1945, and by the end of the month, the city was completely encircled, leaving no avenue for escape. This period before the encirclement triggered a mass exodus of the civilian population toward the west and Pilau. Many were horribly killed, either by the Soviet forces or the bitter January cold, while others drowned in the lagoon, attempting to flee across the ice. It is estimated that each day around 2,000 civilians fled Konigsberg over the frozen bay to Pilau. On the 19th of February, the German forces were able to open up a link between Konigsberg and Pilau with the use of a captured Soviet tank. This allowed the army to link back up, and therefore refugees and supplies were able to move between the areas until the Soviets finally took Konigsberg in April 1945. Somehow, Yadviga seemed gifted with a sense of dangerous situations. Earlier in the summer, she had been given the opportunity to work on a luxury cruise ship called the Steuben. This would have given the family the necessary means to escape by sea. Upon visiting the Steuben with Heike and Arne, Jadwiga didn't like how it felt. It sat deep in the water, and she feared that it could easily be hit by a mine or struck by a torpedo and sink. Her intuition was correct. The Steuben was struck by a torpedo on February 10, 1945, just after midnight with an estimated loss of 4,267 people. The family was only in the luxurious flat for what seemed like a few days before they left the area by train. Hakey states that it couldn't have been later than January 22nd, as this was when the last train left Konigsberg. 
The time between leaving Pilau and arriving at their destination, Gera, Germany, just south of Leipzig, seemed to lack any meaning. This trip is thought to have taken between 8 and 10 weeks when the family traveled 1,000 kilometers to their destination. The trip was difficult on the train. At times they would wait for what seemed like an interminable period of time for the tracks to be repaired. At other times, they would leave one train to board another at a station, which was always filled with a mass of refugees and wounded soldiers. In these train stations, Hakey was desperately afraid of being separated from his mother. The one thing they had going for them was hope. They were moving in the right direction, at least, away from the Soviet army and the reprisal that Jadwiga feared. At one point, they reached a bombed-out train station, and they had to wait for nearly two weeks for the train to get underway again. Hakey believes this must have been outside Dresden, as it was bombed on February 14, 1945. Whenever the train would stop, the family would take the opportunity to scour for food. In some train stations, Red Cross field kitchens were set up and distributed food. The trains never stayed long at the stations for fear of air raids and the practical need to keep the lines open for higher priority military trains that would be passing through. At some stations, Jadwiga would leave Heike and Arne on the train to search for food. Heike was given instructions that if the train started to leave, that he was to take Arne off the train and would wait for his mother to return. These stops made Heike nervous as it brought him back to the time he stayed in Volka when he watched the Jewish mothers leave the train to search for food and the distress that followed when they found the trains had left. There was a lot to see along the route. Soldiers were going back and forth between the front. Refugees were also flooding in from the east, and they looked dirty and unkept. Hakey remembers wondering if they looked as bad. The family lived for nearly two months on and off trains before reaching their final destination, Gera, a city 134 kilometers to the west of Dresden. In Gera, the local burgermeister helped arrange accommodations at a farm. At the farm, they were able to finally sleep on a clean bed with clean white sheets and even a feather duvet. They were able to wash themselves and they even received a ration book so that they could buy food at the local shop. It seemed strange to Hakey that after all the chaos of war that they had been through, that such an idyllic, peaceful place existed. Hakey to this day is not sure why his family were given all these benefits and kindness. Hakey speculates about the picture of the German officer Otto and his mother that Jadwiga carried and the identification card from working for the Germans in Tompea Castle. The countryside around the farm was beautiful with rolling hills, and that spring the cherry blossoms helped add to a feeling of serenity that they were not used to. The farmer at the house was very kind, and he would take the family to his larder, and he would allow Hakey to choose from the, the stash of salami, smoked ham, cheeses, and fruit bread. Hakey was able to provide some use to the farmer, and he worked some long and smelly hours helping to fertilize the fields. Hakey was able to start school again temporarily, but with this, he was made to join the Hitler Youth, which his mother told him it was like the scouts he had previously been in. 
The front line was getting closer to the farm, with air raid sirens now sounding off from time to time. And by May, it had reached the village of Gera, and the artillery could be heard from the farm. American and German fighter planes would occasionally square off in dogfights, and on one of these occasions, Hickey would seek shelter in the cellar to avoid being struck by stray bullets. After a short period of silence, Hickey peered out the window and saw a large lumbering tank with a star on it move unopposed down the Autobahn, moving its turret back and forth looking for prey. After the American troops made it past the village, the farmer dug a hole and buried all of his Nazi artifacts, along with Hakey's Hitler Youth Certificate and scarf. In the following days, there was a brief period of lawlessness. Former Russian prisoners of war joined together in roaming gangs armed with makeshift weapons such as axes and metal bars and went about the countryside taking what they wanted. It was to Hakey's surprise and relief when, after a few days, the lawlessness was ended by a unit of black servicemen and military police. To Hakey's surprise, when the black servicemen entered the town of Gera, when the German women noticed these soldiers, they screamed and ran inside from fear. Hakey pondered about the segregation of black soldiers in the U.S. military at the time, and how these men were some of the nicest men he came across during his harrowing adventures. The shops opened up soon after the U.S. military took control of the town, along with the feeling of some sort of normality. Hakey ended up making some friends in the village, and the boys explored the countryside and found all kinds of live ammunition, and they decided to make a pyrotechnic display on a hill overlooking the town. The boys made and lit a homemade fuse, and all ran in different directions. Hakey describes what he calls the mother of all firework displays. The red-tipped bullets lit up the sky, and the shells went off in quick succession. Hakey seeks shelter in a nearby orchard, where a local farmer found him and demonstrated his anger by punching him hard enough to knock Hakey unconscious. When Hakey got home to his mother, there was no mention of the events of that day. Yadviga had larger concerns. She had just found out Germany was being split into zones, controlled by the French, British, Americans, and Russians. Unfortunately, the area that they were in was to be controlled by the Russians. Yadviga made the decision right away that they needed to leave the Russian zone. Yadviga stated that we have not come this far to allow ourselves to be captured by the Soviets. The old fear of capture, reprisal, and deportation to Siberia came back to Yadviga, and it was clear to her what they needed to do. Their plan was to leave the region of Thuringia in secret before the Russians took over control. She was nervous that someone might turn them in. The war had disrupted the normal transportation methods of rail and bus, and Yadviga had no money at the time, so they decided to leave on foot. The family had originally fled from the Soviet army on September 21, 1945 from Tallinn, and again fled the Soviets in January 1945 from the Baltic coastal town of Pilau. And in May 1945, the family had no choice but to move on and hope to get away from the Soviets. So without a word to the nice family that kept them safe, 
they, quote, borrowed a handcart from the farmer and left early in the morning before anyone was awake, sometime in June. Hakey felt bad for stealing the handcart, but this was truly a matter of life and death. Yadviga pulled the cart, Hakey pushed the cart, and Arne and their possessions rode along. This journey lasted from June to September. Hakey doesn't remember anyone complaining. They were on a mission to reach safety, and they felt that there was light at the end of the tunnel, if only they could keep moving. Yadviga never consulted a map, but she knew what direction she was going as the U.S. Army was leaving the region and were headed in the same direction. When they came upon a village, they would receive a ration book for food and would try to find a place to sleep for the night. On one occasion, no accommodation was to be found and they tried to make themselves comfortable on a park bench. And then something unusual happened. Yadviga started to cry. A farmer took notice and pity on the family and put them up in his barn that evening. The roads began to become more crowded with refugees as they continued west. The farmers became less willing to share food, and Yadviga would ask Heike to politely ask for food, as she believed they would be more willing to take pity on a child. The travel situation got a little better when Yadviga traded the handcart for a pram, and the food situation also got better as they traveled because the military men would throw biscuits, chocolate, and tins of meat from the trucks as they passed. As they continued their journey out of Thuringia, they were lucky to come upon a farmer that welcomed them into his home and offered them a place to sleep, a proper meal, and some very important information. The region of Hesse was only a few kilometers away, but the regions were divided by the river Vera and had checkpoints separating the American and Soviet zones on each end of the bridge. Yadviga had Heike memorize a story that they were leaving the Soviet region to meet up with other family members who they had learned of their whereabouts from the Red Cross, and Heike was to speak only German, because if Estonian would be spoken, it would automatically mark them as traitors. The next morning, when they left the farmhouse, Yadviga was very nervous that they had already missed their opportunity to cross the bridge to freedom. The bridge soon came into view, and a long line of refugees, hundreds long, stood waiting to have their documents checked by the Soviets before heading over to the American side. Yadviga's heart sank. She knew that they had missed their opportunity. The zone demarcations had been set. She knew that if they stood in line and waited their turn at the checkpoint, they would likely be discovered as Estonians that had fled. Her heart sank. She remained quiet a while while she thought over her options. We have not come so far to only now be captured by the Russians, she repeated many times. We are not going to end up in Siberia like father and thousands and millions of other poor people. They slowly moved out of the queue of people, hoping to reach freedom. Heike sensed her plan going into action. Ahead of them, the guards had their heads buried in their business of checking documentation of the refugees seeking permission to cross. Do as I tell you, she said. We will not be caught by the Russian soldiers. Not after all of our attempts to, to escape. They're not going to catch us at the end of the war. 
Jadwiga had been holding Arne in her arms, but then placed him down into the pram. Hickey had no idea of the plan, and therefore did not know to be afraid. Don't run, she commanded. Walk quickly and try not to draw attention. They approached the entrance of the bridge while the guards were still distracted by their work. Jadwiga calmly and firmly said, Quickly, let's go. They started to walk along the bridge, leaving the queue and the guards behind. Quickly, don't move. Don't look back, were her instructions as they headed toward the middle of the bridge. All alone, now in the middle of the bridge, they were isolated and clearly visible. At this point, they were noticed, and Hickey heard the commotion of boots and commands in German. Stop, stop, miss, or I will shoot. The soldiers repeated this command over and over again with great urgency. Hearing the guards' commands, Jadwiga firmly grasped Hickey's hands and said, Keep going. They're not going to take us to Siberia. At this point, they were purposefully were running across the bridge, which seemed to last forever. One of the brave American GIs ran towards the young family, and as he approached, the shouting and the sounds of footsteps behind them stopped. When they finally reached the American side of the bridge and safety, an American officer with stars on his epaulets asked Jadwiga why she had risked their life. He also stated that if the Russian soldier would have shot them, it would have been within his rights. Of course, this officer had no idea what the family had faced or what they would suffer if they didn't take this gamble.